I've been using the word universe and universal quite a lot. And uh, I'd like to read something to you. The arrow on this card points to our star, the sun, which is one of several hundred billion, hundred billion other stars in the Milky Way galaxy, pictured here. The star closest to our sun is 4.5 light years away. A light year is the distance light travels in one year. Light moves at 186,272 miles per second. Our sun is 30,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. So the light you see coming from our galaxy center left there 30,000 years ago. The universe contains at least 100 billion other galaxies. Each galaxy contains at least a hundred billion stars. The reason I'm reading that is to put into context the size of our problems. <laughs> when you compare it to that, it's, it's so minute that one wonders why and what for. And at night, I don't know whether you can see the Milky Way, but in some parts of the world you can see it quite easily. And from where we stand, it looks small. Everything is like pinpoints. But imagine what it looks like from up there to down here to us. Even smaller. <laughs> so. If we keep this sort of thing in mind and recognize the immensity of creation, we may be able to have a perspective which is less self-pointed and more universal. And when that happens, things just fall into place far more easily. We don't have to worry about our own desires so much, whether they come true or not, and our own importance. What we really can attend to is our own growth. And when that happens, the universe gains. How much? Who knows? It may be minutely, but it's better that it minutely gains than that it minutely loses. Because the Buddha said that one can't stand still. One either grows or retards. It's impossible. There's nothing that stands still in a person. So we're either growing in our understanding and purity, or we are going backward. So maybe in the context of the size of this universe, we might see that as a personal goal. To continue with the loving-kindness discourse and the conditions,
which the Buddha described as conditions in order to gain peacefulness and with that to be able to have a loving heart. So these conditions are all part and parcel of our makeup. We all have them within us and all we can attend to is their purification and their growth. Like a garden in which flowers and weeds grow and we need to make a choice. What would I like? Flowers or weeds? Sometimes it's not so easy to distinguish between flowers and weeds. In Australia, a lot of the weeds look like flowers. But some of them are very poisonous. So within our own heart, we need to distinguish between the flowers and the weeds. And if we do that, we can probably remember these conditions and attend to them within ourselves. This attention to ourselves is all that counts. The next one is to be frugal in one's ways. Frugality is considered to be a great virtue. Now, frugality is not synonymous with penny-pinching. Frugality means that one is respectful. Respectful of the things that others have made or manufactured and that we don't fall into the error that our society has fallen into, a throwaway society. When I was young, one didn't throw away watches. One went to the watch repair man and had it repaired. And one didn't throw away shoes either. And there weren't any tins. Nothing came out of tins. It has taken on momentum. So, in the society we live in, things are easily available, too much of it all over. Most people can get it when they want it. And because of that, they don't have respect and gratitude for it. Respect and gratitude are two very important qualities in one's heart. And having respect and gratitude, even for owning a watch, very few people ever think of that. They're cheap. They're easily available. All they need is a little battery. And that's got to be thrown away when it's finished. But a hundred years ago, that would have been a major thing to own a watch. So, it's not the good old days. People were just as unhappy as we are. No, no difference. But because there wasn't such a surfeit of 
material goods, one was more careful of them. And this is a thing that the Buddha advocates, being careful with the things that have been made and watching over them and repairing them and using them to the last possible moment. First of all, one doesn't have to manufacture a new one. And one doesn't have to use time and energy to get a new one. For instance, there's a rule for monks and nuns that when their robes are worn out, that they use them for sitting cloths. And when the sitting cloth is worn out, they use it to wipe their feet on and before they come into the hall. And finally, at the end, when it's no longer usable, then one can discard it. One used to do all those things. I wonder whether anyone can at all remember turning sheets. It was a um, thing to do in every household. The middle of the sheet wears much quicker than the outside because one lies in the middle usually. So it became thin or even had holes in it. So it would be cut in the middle and the sheet would be turned. The outside would be, the outside edges would be sewn together in the middle. And then the thin part was on the outside. Every household used to do that. People have never heard of it. It's just, it's lost. And sheets aren't all that cheap either. So there is a certain lack of respect and a certain lack of attention to the material goods. Not because one is utterly rich, but because it just hasn't been in the consciousness of our whole society. And the more the society is one that moves a lot, changes their living quarters a lot, moves from maybe one state to another, the more that happens, the less one is steady in one's place, the more that lack of respect for the material goods around one happens. Together with that comes the lack of respect for nature around us. The um, greatest fallacy and the greatest um, detriment to the earth has been the mental formation, the notion that it is just something that we can use and forgotten that it's alive. Lack of respect, lack of gratitude. Who remembers to be grateful to the dairy farmer when one drinks milk? Nobody. It's just something that's out of the context of our thoughts. Frugality 
is a way of attending with mindfulness to everything that one comes into contact with. It obviously, when something is completely broken, one does have to get rid of it. There's no doubt about it. But to make use of it as long as possible. There is just so much on this planet that we can use. There seems to be an abundance of everything, but there's also an abundance of people. And far more than there used to be in the Buddhist time. And they're being added on constantly, every minute. So, with that in mind, we can have that kind of inner realization of taking care of things so that someone else will not have any lack of it. It also means taking care of the things that belong to others as well as one takes care of the things that one believes belong to oneself. Actually, they belong to the universe. There's no owner of anything. So if we have that in mind, we may actually have far more joy because gratitude brings joy. And if we can see all the things that we are actually using to our own comfort and advantage that somebody else has made and are grateful for the situation that we can have them, then there's joy in the heart. And a lot of our unreasonable desires and those that cause grief and hardship, and some of our desires certainly do that, will vanish because with gratitude and joy in the heart, it's not so important to have desires for other things. Obviously, our commercial and industrial sector of society wouldn't approve of those sentiments, but then not so many people will ever attend to them. But if we are concerned with our own spiritual growth, gratitude and respect are two factors which need to be embedded in one's heart, easily accessible and at times when others don't even see that there's anything to be grateful for. It's quite amazing how much we have to be grateful for and how little we remember that. We remember for some very odd reason those things which we don't really appreciate. And we remember them from way back. Instead of remembering all the things that are supporting us, be grateful. Be grateful for one's health, 
one's wealth, the efficiency of one's senses, they are working, the friends one has, the food one eats. The more we can be grateful and respectful of all those things, the less we have to worry about the things that we don't appreciate. And some of them might be decades ago. And some of them might be criticizing oneself. None of that provides inner growth. But gratitude and respect does that. The next one is an important one which we have already discussed when we were discussing the Potapada Sutta with senses calmed. There it was guarding the senses. Obviously, when we guard our senses, we guard our mind with it. When we calm down our sense desires, it's due to insight. Due to insight into the lack of fulfillment that a gratified sense desire will provide. The more we can see that, that a gratified sense desire cannot possibly bring inner fulfillment the less will be bothered by them. Sensual desire is a bother. And the Buddha called it to be in debt. We are owing constantly because it's never ga- getting paid in full. The gratification arises and ceases and becomes a memory. And as it becomes a memory, and we try to bring it up, it arouses a new desire. And again, it arises, the gratification arises, the gratification ceases, it becomes a memory and creates a new desire. Is that any way to live? It can't provide peace. It can't provide happiness. It can't provide anything except agitation. The mind which has a lot of sensual desire is an agitated mind because it's looking for the gratification of it, of that desire. And obviously there are times such as in a course like this when the gratification of certain sensual desires is completely impossible. So the mind remains agitated. Instead of recognizing the short duration of the gratification and being grateful for that what one has already without looking for something else, it's not necessary to have something else to be contented, to be easily satisfied, to be frugal. It all goes in the same direction. Letting go. Being the way we are and not trying to get 
and to become. Naturally, that goes against our grain. We have the natural tendency to get more, to get another, something different, something we haven't had yet. And yet, there are only a certain number of sensual contacts we can make. We've only got five senses and thinking. So there's only a certain amount of contacts we can make with the senses. They are quite numerous, but we can go through them in a very short time. And we could probably go through all sensual contacts which are possible within a year, probably even within six months, maybe less. And as we do that, and then recognize that there has been some pleasure, the mind immediately conjures up either wanting the same again or a new one. Until one day, one's done it often enough and long enough to recognize that that's no way to peacefulness. That's no way to become solid within, without fear, without craving, but just being what one is and attending to one's own purification. If one has tried often enough the same things over and over again, because everybody has certain tendencies to use their senses, and so they will try the same thing over and over again. And some of it will be gratifying and some of it will not. And if one's done it often enough, one should finally come to the conclusion that that can't be it. It doesn't mean under any circumstances, that we should never have pleasant, sensual contact. We get it anyway. It's part and parcel of being a human being. Looking at the trees is pleasant sense contact. Hearing the Dhamma should be pleasant sense contact. Meditating should be pleasant for our mind without the sense contact. We have all those inbuilt. We taste pleasant food and hear and see pleasant things. But if we use our mind to grasp for them and crave for them. We're using our mind in the lowest possible denominator that there is. If there's any refinement within oneself, or one is looking for refinement, then to search for the sensual gratification needs to be at least minimized because that is the grossest and lowest form of attaining pleasure, happiness, if one wants to call it that. 
but none of that will stay with one. The Buddha said about the meditative absorptions, this is a pleasure I will allow myself. And he calls essential pleasures, gross. Again, they come to us anyway on the human level. They sort of balance out our dukkha. And because they do, we often try to immerse ourselves in the search for the sensual gratification because the last time we had the gratification it eliminated the dukkha for a moment but how long is that moment? If one has any kind of understanding of oneself one needs to check out how long is the moment of sensual gratification and how much gratification gives the memory. This is a very easy way to see that there's nothing in it. The Buddha compared the gratification of the senses with empty villages. He said there would be um, like a traveler who didn't have any provisions, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And so he saw a village in the distance. And so he was quite happy to see that village and thought, well, that's where you'll get some food and drink. <clears throat> but as he got near to the village, he realized it was empty. There wasn't a single inhabitant. In other words, a ghost town. So... He was quite unhappy about that, but he continued his journey and he saw another village in the distance. And again, he was happy to see it. And again, he got there. And again, it was a ghost town. The Buddha compares sensual gratification and sensual desire with a ghost town. When we're there, it's so quickly over that it hadn't had any real substance. Just like an empty village with nobody in it. He often talked about that because one can say that that particular hindrance not only stands at the um, top of the list of our five hindrances, but it stands also at the top of the list of our mental formations. We want it nice and we want comfort. And we want to have the gratifying sense contact. And because this is so strong and blocks the spiritual growth with such vehemence he often mentioned it. It doesn't mean that we can now let go of all our sensual desires, but we should see them for what they are, a dangerous undertaking, something that leads nowhere at all. If we don't do something about it now, 
we're going to have the desire for sensual gratification on our deathbed. And there it will be very hard to find that gratification. And what's going to happen is that we won't like at all what's happening to us. So an intelligent surveillance of one's own sensual desires will bring about a far more realized practice of the spiritual path. Because if we let ourselves be disturbed by them, not only in meditation, which of course happens frequently, the more desire, the less meditation, but also in our daily lives, they disrupt our peace in daily lives. An intelligent surveillance of those past memories can bring that about and not a hope for something better next time. Our senses are our senses. They don't change. They're the same. And our mind makes up the stories. We need to remember that too. We are causing the disruption in the mind, not in the senses themselves. The sense base of eye and ear and nose and taste and body and thought is not disrupted. It's the mind which is constantly disrupted because the mind has to recognize the contact and react to it. So what we're actually doing is we are hurting, in a way, the greatest jewel that there is, our mind. With senses calmed, such an important point that the Buddha has it in innumerable suttas, wherever he describes the pathway. When the pathway is described, this is one step on the path. Without it, we're blocking ourselves. Craving, as we know, is dukkha. So all these sensual desires are all producing dukkha in the mind. Then there's the moment of gratification and then the dukkha arises again because we want to have it back. It's totally unsatisfactory. People don't take enough time to investigate it. There, it's sufficient for them to have a momentary satisfaction. And a momentary satisfaction is not part of a spiritual path. The next point, the next uh, condition is intelligent. Intelligent is a mind that can make connections, that can connect 
one thing to another and thereby see the significance. If one can connect one's own behavior to the underlying tendencies of hate and greed, one knows what goes on. That's intelligent. Intelligent does not mean that one has a number of degrees. Intelligent does not mean that one has read a lot of books. It does not mean that one can do arithmetic quicker than somebody else. It means making the connections. Understanding the actions which one does, seeing them for what they are, how do they arise, what is their meaning. And when we see that connection, then we can see also that if we don't do something about it, we will remain connected to our basest instincts. This is what humanity does as a whole, remaining connected to their basest instincts. And that's why we have a world as we have it, full of dreadful happenings, war and cruelty, rape and murder, robbery, family disruption, abuse of another, abuse of nature. Why? Because we're connected to our basest instincts. We will never be able to disconnect every human being on this planet from his or her basest instincts, but we can at least disconnect ourselves. They're totally unnecessary. We don't need them. A certain intelligence is needed in order to see that connection. And sometimes the Buddha's teaching has been accused of being elitist because he did talk about intelligent people a lot. And when they did something entirely wrong, the monks and nuns, he called them fools. That was about the worst... Um, um, epitaph used for them but I mean nobody likes to be called a fool it's a native intelligence it's got nothing to do with one's education in fact sometimes the education stands in the way because one has been possibly brainwashed into a certain mode of thinking which does no longer applies to the intelligent appraisal of what goes on. An intelligent appraisal brings one to eventually seeing things as they really are, which is, so to say, the stepping stone towards the freedom from dukkha. When we see things as they really are, that finally brings us into a different mode of perception of what goes on within us and around us. The first step is looking at one's own actions and reactions 
and seeing their cause. It's so simple, really, to see their cause. The only thing is we make excuses and we just justify and we blame and we criticize and we're sorry for ourselves. The last one is of great detriment to our spiritual growth. When we're sorry for ourselves, there's nothing left to do. We're sorry because we feel that we're being shortchanged, that we're not getting what is our due. How do we know what's our due? Have we got a dues list? We have no idea. We just make it all up. What we're getting are karmic resultants. And that is our dues list. And there's nothing anybody else can do about it. So, intelligence is highly prized by the Buddha. It's not synonymous with discursive thinking. And also, it's not synonymous with trying to make one's own opinion stick. It's synonymous with making connections, with seeing behind the scene, and sometimes hearing behind the words. But of course, actions are louder than words. And the next one is to be not bold. And that is the equivalent to being mild. And the Buddha made a comparison between males and females. And he said, the females are like a vine that is looking for a strong tree where it can get a hold and wind around this tree in order to stand up. In other words, looks for a support system. And the male is like a crow, always looking for its own advantage. And of course, both need to discard those tendencies. If you've ever watched a crow, how it goes about getting its food, it uh, very successfully gets rid of all the other birds, except when they're too big. But everything else that is around is removed. And it actually can be as bold as walking into your house. There were a lot of crows in uh, Sri Lanka who walked into our kitchen and were bold enough to get up on the uh, workbench and sample the food. I met up with a whole family of crows in Australia that would peck at the window. There was a huge um, glass door. They'd peck at that glass door if they didn't get their breakfast in time. And, of course, it was a bit dangerous because they have very strong beaks 
and the glass door isn't it's breakable so one preferred to give them their breakfast (laughs) (laughs) this um, uh, comparison is of course the extreme and it doesn't necessarily mean a male and a female body not at all it means a male and a female tendencies in us and we all have both and we usually um, equate the uh, male tendency with the logical analytical mind and with the willpower to exert oneself and create something whereas we compare and equate the female part in us with the nourishing, loving, compassionate and caring side. Obviously all of us have both. But on the other hand we also have both of those tendencies. The boldness of trying to get what we want and the tendency to find someone or something that we can lean on because we don't feel competent enough to stand on our own two feet. Preferably we are looking for somebody. And very often on the side of the female it's a male and very often on the side of the male it's a female. Very often is putting it mildly. That's it. That's what we do. And the Buddha of course was teaching independence. Independence which brings freedom. As long as we are dependent upon another person, whoever it may be, including a guru, as long as we are dependent on that for our growth and happiness, so long we have absolutely no freedom. Because we have to be attentive to that other person's emotions and kind of move in the direction so that there isn't a great deal of disharmony. And very often that prevents us from being honest. Honest to the other person, honest to ourselves. When we depend upon someone else, honesty vanishes. And when honesty vanishes, we can no longer see straight. We know nothing, because only honesty makes it possible to see ourselves and the world the way it really is. So this dependence upon other people creates not only lack of freedom, dishonesty in oneself, but also anxiety. Is the other person going to be available? Is the other person going to be agreeable? Is the other person going to be supportive? All those features to look for in another person makes life very uncomfortable. And most people are most uncomfortable. And that's why we're constantly looking for the gratification of our sense desires 
because we are so uncomfortable. This inner discomfort creates that search. But we can do much better than that. We can create inner comfort and then we don't have to look for the gratification of sensual desire. If we realize that it's only our own work and our own way of being that will create inner comfort, then we'll work at that. If we are looking for appreciation, the answer is to appreciate. If we're looking for comfort, the answer is to create comfort within through loving. All of that, what we're looking for from others, we can create within ourselves and thereby let it come out from us to others and then there's no anxiety anymore because we don't need to get it we've got it it's such a simple formula such a simple recipe one wonders why one can't think of it oneself when we've got it within and give it to others that's the answer to the search we have to get it from someone naturally it takes a bit of work and uh, takes a bit of um, remembering and it takes a bit of um, being attentive to oneself paying attention and takes a bit of intelligence but we've got all those possibilities haven't we and practically everybody in the world has it most people have some native intelligence and most people live with that kind of uh, syndrome is completely detrimental to our spiritual growth because we can't make the other person grow we can only make ourselves grow and therefore we need to pay attention to that only it can also take on another um, mode of being looking for appreciation and looking for the uh, fulfillment of one's wishes from someone else and not having got it one may become indifferent turning oneself away losing all one's social skills that's an extreme but it does happen and sometimes happens with such force that it actually becomes an illness so none of that is useful useful is only to foster both sides of our nature the male and the female within us the logical analytical thinking which is intelligent and the caring and nourishing and nurturing and loving side which is impersonal love and compassion 
and balance and harmonize both sides within us. If there's too much of the logic and intelligence and none of the heart side developed, it's not only like limping on one leg and not being able to get forward very well, it's cold and dry. And it doesn't feel at all satisfying. And one looks even for more gratification of sensual desire. And if one only develops the other side, the hard side, the caring and the loving, and doesn't develop the mental side at all, then one's definitely looking for somebody who's going to do it for one. Someone who's going to explain it all. We can explain everything to ourselves. We are that what we're trying to find out. It's all there. So developing both sides within us is uh, essential for an harmonious and balanced life. We do know that we have them because, first of all, we can do both and we also know that the right and left hemisphere are the two sides of us. So there's no, no reason not to recognize the need to develop that. The dependency on others, whoever they might be, is complete bondage which prevents growth on the spiritual path. We can't be dependent for our happiness on someone else. We can give them happiness. And when we do that, we obviously have it within. So whatever we want from someone else, happiness, appreciation, love, care, concern, all of that, anything that we want, we need to develop it, because obviously it's lacking somewhere. And once we developed it, we've got it. And that's the only way that we'll ever have it. Because if we're looking for it from someone else, it's theirs, not ours. The next one is not being covetous when with other folk. It's also, it's one way of uh, translation. Another way of translating that is not being swayed by the emotions of the crowd. And I've already mentioned that just now. But not being covetous when with other folk means no envy not being envious of what others have or can do or their looks or their apparent spiritual uh, proficiency or their apparent proficiency in other matters or anything at all 
that others have, when there's any envy of that, we've lost the understanding that joy with others is actually the only way that we can properly relate to each other. Joy with others means that we really feel happiness for their achievement. So if somebody sits for two hours without moving and the mind says, wish I could do that, can't do that. That person must be way advanced. Don't know how I'll ever get there. Then that's the wrong way to look at that. The mind should say, isn't that wonderful? He or she is sitting so quietly. Must be really getting concentrated. I'm so glad. Why is that the only way that we can attend to such a matter? Not because we're goody-goodies. None of what the Buddha teaches is designed in that direction. That's a dreadful stance. It's because joy is what the mind and the heart need in order to meditate. If there's no joy, one can't meditate oneself anyway. And joy is what the universe needs. However billion of galaxies there might be, it doesn't matter. The universal consciousness needs to be imbued with joy. And if there's joy within us, then joy will obviously come out of us. We keep forgetting that it isn't throwing tin cans and plastic away that pollutes the environment. Our negative emotions and thoughts pollute the environment. And they pollute the environment with such a vengeance that one sometimes can actually feel it when one comes near a person that has a lot of that. So, Joy with others is the third one of the four Brahma-viharas. The divine abidings, the paradise within, the highest emotions. It is a skill that needs to be practiced. It needs intelligence. Practically all of this needs intelligence because it needs the insight to recognize how damaging envy is to oneself. Never mind the one we are envious of. That person might never find out. But envy damages our own inner being. It's an insidious rust which corrodes it corrodes within joy with others is something that we can have many times because we may not have something so greatly joyful happening to us but we may see something joyful in others so we have a much greater chance of having continuous joy when we look for 
the good things that happen to others. When we look for their achievements, when we look for their abilities, and when we do that, we'll stop criticizing them for the things they can't do. Because we will be seeing those things that we can have joy with. Their proficiencies, their abilities, their knowledge, their care, their work. So many things that one can praise and appreciate. So it all works together. When we can praise and appreciate and have joy with another person, then joy increases within us and joy increases in the universe. Most people do not disconnect from the basic instincts and envy is a very common and easily aroused characteristic. Its near enemy is hypocrisy. Little social white lies. Like somebody has had good fortune in his work, in his job, whichever way, in his family. And we feel compelled to congratulate them. And within ourselves we think, I don't know why everything works out for that person all the time. Why don't I have these things happen to me? What have I done wrong? Well, then, of course, our congratulation is hypocritical. Hypocrisy is an enemy of being able to change from the negative to the positive. We often justify it because it's the thing that needs to be done. It's a done thing. And we justify it with there's no harm in it. There's harm in it for ourselves. The thing to do is when we feel like that, why does it always happen to this person and he's always having good luck and I haven't, is to try and change that way of thinking and feeling and being happy with somebody else's good fortune. It's a very ingrained teaching from um, in Buddhist societies. One can't always distinguish between the real thing and hypocrisy because people are able to say one thing and mean another. But it is something that is very ingrained in Buddhist society to recognize the good things and have joy with them, real inner joy. When one understands that everything good that happens in the world is also part of oneself, then it's much easier. But when one is still completely self-centered and self-cherishing and only concerned with one's own well-being, then one can't see that. But when we see that the world is togetherness 
of many different phenomena, then it's easy to have joy with others. One time, Casey, who was an elephant trainer, came to see the Buddha. And he said to him, I don't have any problem with elephants. I'm very good at training them. I can see exactly what they're going to do. It's quite clear to me. But I have trouble understanding people. Can you help me with that? And the Buddha said, you're quite right. The elephant will have an intention and he will actually manifest it and do it. But people have a jungle thicket of mental formations. They'll say one thing and do another. We should not fall into that category. should be more straightforward like an elephant. The elephant, by the way, is the most highly prized animal in all of India and Sri Lanka and Thailand and those countries and was even more highly prized in the days of the Buddha. It was a royal animal. The last one of the conditions is to abstain from the ways that wise ones blame. And that concerns the five precepts. To abstain from the ways that wise ones blame means that one does one best to actually follow the five precepts. I have already mentioned them in the first week that we were here. I'll repeat them right now not to kill any living beings but on the opposite side to train oneself in loving kindness and compassion not to take anything that is not given but to train oneself in generosity generosity always stands at the apex of the virtues and the reason for that is because it is the first way and the easiest way to reduce the self-supportive stance one takes and think of others and it is actually a wonderful way of practice Not to take what is not given is something that is also very important in business life. People that are in business often use devious means of getting more uh, profit. And if it's devious, one should always abstain from it not paying their bills in time and uh, uh, making far too much profit on, on goods and 
things like that, which one, if one has any reason to follow precepts, one should avoid like the plague. The third one is to undertake the training to abstain from sexual misconduct. Now, sexual misconduct must be recognized as being hurtful physically, mentally, or emotionally to another. So if there's any misconduct, it also refers to not hurting another person who may have a connection to one. To abstain from any hurt so that nobody feels in any way upset or feels um, cheated in any way. The opposite is reliability and responsibility and also calming the senses, letting go. That's the part and parcel of the opposite, of course. Letting go, seeing that there is danger in too much desire. And the fourth one is undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech, which is, of course, lying, but it's idle chatter, gossip, backbiting. The opposite is, of course, the skill of speech. The skill of speech is uh, often misunderstood. It doesn't mean to be an orator, not at all. And it doesn't mean flattery, and it doesn't mean saying what the other person wants to hear. And it also doesn't mean that one can get away with just being friendly and polite. Right speech means speaking meaningful. About meaningful subjects on a meaningful level. And when one does that, one feels uplifted. And when one doesn't, it's very tiring. And from that one might be able to ascertain what one is doing with one's speech. It's a skill like any other. It's a training like any other. And the last one is abstaining from, in the original it says, fermented substances. Nowadays we say alcohol and drugs because they confuse the mind even more than it is already confused. The opposite of that is mindfulness, paying attention to oneself. Paying attention, making the connection, understanding how it comes about, realizing that none of the baser connections are necessary, recognizing that there is happiness and joy and peacefulness waiting within if we discard all those things which are like debris covering up the beauty of heart and mind. When we find that beauty within, that means we have tossed out the debris.
And we can do that over and over again because there's always new debris coming. It's just like taking out the garbage every week. I mean, we don't, we don't think that having done it once, there isn't any more garbage. We keep on doing that every single week. They come around and pick it up. Well, with this stuff, nobody needs to come and pick it up. <laughs> we can just toss it out. And with that, we have finished the 15 conditions which are essential for gaining the state of wholesomeness and inner peacefulness. And then it says, and this is the thought that one should always hold. May beings all live happily and safe, and may their hearts rejoice within themselves. This, the thought that one should always hold. How often do we forget? Always. Not sometimes. Always. When we always remember that beings should live happily and safe, we will not harm them. And that their hearts should rejoice within themselves, we will do nothing to the contrary. And we wish this for all beings. So this is the thought that one should always hold. May beings all live happily and safe, and may their hearts rejoice within themselves.